Section 5 of The Exploits and Triumphs in Europe of Paul Morphy, the Chess Champion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Exploits and Triumphs in Europe of Paul Morphy, the Chess Champion by Frederick Milnes Edge Chapter 4, Part 2 We are upon classic ground. Who does not remember the feats performed within the walls of this home of the glorious departed? We shall forget the oft-told wonders of that golden age of chess. Anything related of the Westminster Club is swallowed with willing faith by gaping acolytes. Those were glorious days indeed, the Homeric age of zactriciological worthies. Amongst the early supporters of the club were the Reverend Mr. Darblay, son of Madame Darblay, Mr. Skelton, so well known about town as Dandy Skelton, Mr. Nixon, organist of the Bavarian Catholic Church in Warwick Street, Duncan Forbes, professor of Oriental languages at University College, and many other celebrated literary characters. The proprietor, Mr. Hutman, followed the enterprise with spirit. Every cigar he sold in the coffee-room was wrapped in a printed problem, and, in addition, he published a periodical penny miscellany on chess. Such extraordinary exertions quickly bore fruit, and, in a short time, the club rose to something like fifty members. The room in which the meetings were held became, in consequence, so hot that it was deservedly styled the oven. Emboldened by success, Mr. Hutman began to look about for new and more commodious quarters. These he eventually found on the opposite side of the street. Certain gamblers had there taken a house, and furnished the principal apartments in sumptuous style, for the sole purpose of decoying thither a young foreign nobleman, who, in one night, is said to have lost there upwards of thirty thousand pounds. The house, having served their diabolical ends, was of no further use to them and Mr. Hutman rented it. Here the Westminster Club was enshrined. Amongst the chief supporters were Mr. George Walker, Honorable Secretary, Mr. B. Smith, M.P., Albany Fonblank, Esquire, of the Examiner, Messrs. Perigel, Slaus, Popert, MacDonnell, and many others from the London Club. In 1833, Labardonnais and MacDonnell played their different matches at these splendid rooms. By the continued exertions of Mr. George Walker, the number of members was increased to three hundred. What a glorious muster-roll! Why should the old days not live again at the West End? Surely the ranks of chess-players are not thinned, nor is their strength diminished. Our Lowenthal's, Bowden's, Bird's, Stauntons, Barnsey's, Buckles, Wormold's, Fockbeer's, Bryan's, Zytogorowski's, Lowe's, Hannah, etc., 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 are worthy descendants of West End men of the olden time, without even enlisting the support of such city magnates as Montgredieu, Slouse, Medleys, etc., of the ancient and virile London club. Many members of the Westminster still make love to the nymph Caissa, such historical names as Slouse and Walker, for instance. But in addition to the above-mentioned general officers, we now possess a constantly increasing rank and file, recruited from the chess-playing militia of schools and private families. 
Chess is assuming vast proportions in England and America. Scarcely a weekly paper of any circulation but gives a column to the game, and certainly no newspaper editor would do so if he did not find it pay. At the west end of London there now exists two clubs of importance, the Old St. George's and the New St. James, the Philidorian rooms in Rathbone Place, partaking rather of the Devon character. Neither of these clubs require proficiency in the game as a passport for membership, and a gentleman receiving the Queen would be just as eligible as the amateur giving it. Surely the advantages offered for increasing one's strength in this intellectual struggle of mind against mind should be an inducement for young players to enroll themselves in one or the other of these two associations. When the Westminster had grown up into a goodly body of three hundred members, Mr. George Walker began to find that the duties of secretary were interfering seriously with his other pursuits, and he therefore resigned the office and was succeeded by Mr. William Greenwood Walker, to whom the chess world is so much indebted for taking down the games of Macdonnell. The club had arrived at its Augustine era, and, in 1838, its fortunes began to wane, the proprietor getting into pecuniary difficulties. Mr. Hutman could not let well alone. He introduced a daily dinner, on plans so profoundly calculated that the more persons who dined, the more he lost. He got the club, also, into a bad odor, by allowing chess to be played there on Sundays. Musical soirees and other nonsense followed. The main object of the establishment thus became ignored, and, instead of new members joining, the old ones fell off one by one, and the princely mansion in Bedford Street was shortly to let. Mr. Hutman's pecuniary difficulties periled the very existence of the club, notwithstanding that the members handed over to him the reserve fund, amounting to a few hundred pounds. No club can be said to be in safety without such a fund upon which to fall back in case of emergency, as, for instance, retirement of members. Members of chess clubs will retire, prominent ones even, a very frequent cause being marriage. The backsliders, however, often come back, eventually. The Westminster Club, being now without house or home, looked about for some benevolent individual who would take them in and do for them. Such an one they found in Mr. Rees, proprietor of the Devon in the Strand, who offered them private rooms in his establishment. Thither the debris of old Westminster forthwith removed. Each member was provided with a latch-key, with which to let himself in at the private door. Here it was that Mr. Staunton appeared for the first time in chess circles although he was never a member of the Westminster Club. In its new quarters the association drew out an existence of twelve months, giving up the ghost in 1840. About this time the veteran writer and encyclopedist Alexandre made a lamentable fiasco at his Café de l'Echiquier in Paris, an establishment which he vainly hoped would entice away the habitués at the Cafés de la Regence et de Procopa. Coming over to London, he made the acquaintance of Mr. Staunton, and the two players struck hands together, and resolved to open a chess establishment as a partnership concern. Alexandre put in his little all, the change out of his Paris capital, and he and his coagitator opened rooms at the Waterloo Chambers. A very good locality, perhaps too good, for rents in that neighborhood are rather high. Some twenty or thirty old players rallied round them, but the attempt was only of short duration. The two camarades took to squabbling and vilifying each other, 
and, within a year, the club was formally dissolved at the request of the members. All connection now being severed between the members and Messrs. Alexandre and Staunton, the amateurs convened a private meeting for the purpose of examining their prospects, and taking steps for reorganization. Mr. George Walker advertised for a large room, and was answered by Mr. Beattie, proprietor of Beattie's Hotel, George Street, Hanover Square. Here, once again, the remains of the old guard planted their standard, and in special solemn convocation, under a full sense of their responsibility, and with all due solemnity, they christened their club the St. George's, the name being suggested, in the first place, by the baptismal appellative of their virtual founder and honorable secretary, Mr. George Walker, and secondly, because the meeting was in George Street, in the Paris of St. George's. The club was exceedingly prosperous during the first year of its existence, much being due to the fostering care of Mr. B. Smith, M.P., for Norwich, who was assiduous in his attendance, and a capital whipper-in of members. The room was large, well-proportioned, and well-ventilated, cooking first-rate, wines unexceptionable. Wine, by the by, makes your game brilliant, if not sound. Dull, unimaginative Zetten would have been betrayed into an attempt at brilliance and dash, with a couple of bottles of old crusted under his belt. But it began to appear as though a West End club could be naught but an annual. Mr. Beattie failed in business, and the St. George's were turned out of doors, wanderers for a season, without prospect of refuge, and the devotees of Caissa were on the town for some weeks, two or three of the leading and most active assiduously on the watch to find a fresh location, but almost in blank despair as to the result. Mr. B. Smith was a large shareholder in the Polytechnic Institution, Regent Street. The managing committee of that estimable establishment were, about this time, endeavoring to form reading rooms by subscription, in the first floor of their building, facing Cavendish Square. It was suggested to the committee that chess and reading might be combined, that one large room facing the square should be set apart for reading exclusively, and two smaller ones be devoted to chess. A meeting was forthwith convened, Mr. Nurse representing the proprietors of the institution. The chess players present being Mr. B. Smith, Mr. Richard Penn, and the indefatigable and indomitable George Walker. These three gentlemen guaranteed that one hundred members, paying an annual subscription of three guineas each, should be enrolled in the chess club within twelve months, and once again the Red Cross of the St. George's was floating bravely in the air. Forthwith commenced the hunting up of old members of the Westminster and other West End clubs, Touching and tender circulars were issued by Mr. Walker, adjuring the straggling devotees of Caissa, by all the recollections of their first and early loves, by all their hopes of a glorious hereafter, to rush once more to the rescue. Could such pathetic appeals fall unheeded upon the chess lover's ear? No. A hundred and fifty members reiterated no to the accompaniment of their one hundred and fifty-three guineas subscriptions. Royal Blue Book notabilities enrolled themselves, as, for instance, the present Lord Ravensworth, Dr. Murray, Lord Bishop of Rochester, the Honorable Charles Murray, Mr. Brooke Greville, Mr. Albany Fonblanc, the Misters Hampton, Lord Clarence Paget, and a host of other fashionables. So the St. George's flourished for years, and it began to appear that a chess club at the West End could, under proper management, become a permanent institution. 
It was in this locale that Mr. Staunton played his first match with St. Amant, and, losing it, took his revenge by winning in his turn at Paris. For some reason or other the French amateur displayed unaccountable nervousness during the progress of the match in his own capital. The Baron de Le Blanc Blanc, who was well known in Parisian salons as an excellent player and firm supporter of the game, assured me but lately that she had no easy task in instilling courage into her countryman, startled as he was by Mr. Staunton's winning game after game from him. Warming up under the merry rebukes of his fair inspirer, St. Damont began to turn the tables upon his antagonist, and it seemed as if he would anticipate the result of the contest between Lowenthal and Harwitz. Mr. Staunton, however, eventually won, and the stakes were deposited for the third and deciding match, but Mr. S. was taken ill, and it was never played. It is unfortunate for Mr. Staunton's reputation that the plea of bad health was so frequently used by him when opponents appeared, more especially as he is the first to ridicule such an excuse when coming from others. And it is more than ever unfortunate in this instance, because the French players declared that, judging from the later games of the match in Paris, it was obvious that Mr. Staunton would have succumbed to their champion if the third and deciding heat had not been prevented by the Englishman's indisposition and many of them even affirmed that Mr. S. felt this, and acted in consequence. It may be added that the St. George's Club had been installed at the Polytechnic Institute some years before Mr. Staunton joined them, as an honorary member, in compliment to his rising reputation. Mr. Staunton was laid under lasting obligations to Mr. George Walker, by the latter's bringing him from obscurity into public notice, not merely by introducing him to the London chess world, but, in addition, by flattering notices of him in his works. He may, in fact, be considered the pupil of Mr. Walker, and the courtesy with which he has always treated his benefactor makes one think of Labardonnaise's delicacy toward his old master, de Chapelles. It would seem as though chess players, like other men, get weary in well-doing, and constantly stand in need of fresh stimulus. Nothing could have been more suitable or comfortable than the accommodation of the St. George's at the Polytechnic, and yet they got to yearning after they scarcely knew what. The cry was raised that members ought to be able to dine at their club, and they forthwith migrated, in mass, to apartments in Crockford's Club, transmogrified into an eating-house on a splendid scale, and styled the Wellington. Here they dwindled away, and the St. George's would have finally disappeared from existence had it not been for the kindness of Mr. Thomas Hampton, who offered them apartments at New Palace Club Chambers, in King Street, St. James. Under his fostering care, and the patriotic manner in which he is continually arranging matches and organizing tournaments amongst the members, the St. George's has largely increased its muster-roll of amateurs, and bids fair to enjoy more halcyon days than ever. In these rooms Paul Morphy played part of his match with Herr Lowenthal, and vanquished the well-known amateur Altair, in a contest at pawn and move. And in dismissing this now prosperous West End club, I must not forget to mention, for the benefit of those of my readers who are ignorant of the fact, that it was the St. George's which initiated and successfully carried out the Grand International Tournament of 1851, in which the Teutonic element made itself so conspicuous. Experience seems to teach us that no West End club can be permanently prosperous, without a recognized professor of the game being constantly, 
or frequently in attendance of one whose object is the interest not of himself but of chess willing and ready to play with all comers for the benefit of all in such a club as the london where the members are businessmen there is no hollow principle of caste social democracy exists and the players play talk laugh and eat together on a perfect equality be they simple clerks or merchant princes at the court end of town manners are reserved and such a thing may happen as two members of the same club waiting several years before an introduction justifies them in speaking to each other a professor would bring all these stupid convenances de la société to a speedy end and by his recognized position in the club arrange contests between members of equal force and thus further the objects for which they are associated the london chess club in the very heart of the city of london under the shadows of the bank and royal exchange and but a step from lombard street the london chess club holds its daily sittings who would expect to find such an association in such a place is the quiet of the chess arena consonant with the hum of busy multitudes hurrying to and fro in never-failing ardour after the yellow god are stocks and scrip of dividends allied to gambits and mates shall lloyd's capel court and the corn exchange furnish supporters of caissa come along with me to the corn hill stop this is purcell's restaurant we'll walk upstairs this room on the first floor is devoted to billiards above it meets the cosmopolitan club and on the third floor out of the reach of the noise below is the famous old london of which every player of note during the past fifty years has either been a member or visitor it is between three and four o'clock in the afternoon and the rooms of the club present the usual appearance at that hour in the right-hand corner we perceive the president mr mongredu engaged in dire conflict with mr maud to whom he has offered the advantage of pawn and move readers of the chess players chronicle the palamede and la regenza have known that mr mongredu for long years past as an amateur of first-rate force who gets himself invariably into difficulties at the commencement of a game by his unvanquishable contempt for book openings but who comes out all right at last by his masterly tactics in the middle of the contest possessed of a fund of native english humour and a finished scholar withal he keeps up a running fire of wit and anecdote throughout the game in which the lookers-on join by his side is mr george medley the secretary of the club whose name is also a household word to amateurs he and mr mongredu ranking as the strongest players of the association the latter gentleman has run in for an hour's play from the corn exchange being in fact one of those men who before the knowledge of the political economy had become diffused among the masses were styled the rogues in grain mr medley has just arrived from the stock exchange where after bearing and bowling mr slouse george walker and mr waite during the morning he meets them at the chess club towards three o'clock and they become as much absorbed in the mysteries of the game as though it were the business of their lives if you wish to see what influence chess can have upon individuals just analyze the london club the members are not men of straw but sound substantial citizens with balances at their bankers heavy enough to buy up a half a dozen lords does a rothschild or a barring negotiate alone here you will find men to take up a greater part if not the whole of it is capital for a railroad wanted you need not wander much further 
Look around you, and you will recognize many of the foremost of Great Britain's merchant princes, men pushing England's commerce into every bay and inlet of old ocean, carrying the British flag across seas and lakes and penetrating continents, causing British cannon to thunder at the gates of Peking, and opening Japan to the commerce of the world. These are the children of the men who first planted foot in Hindostan, descendants of those who established England's colonies. These are the men, the very men, who repealed the Corn Laws in 1846, established the principle of free trade, and told a proud, titled aristocracy, we, the middle class, the merchants, bankers, and manufacturers of Great Britain, are the source of all power in England, as we are the source of her greatness. An admirable demonstration of these ideas is to be found in the London Chess Club. The association has flourished with never-failing vigor since its establishment in 1807, whilst the clubs have risen, waned, and died at the fashionable end of the town. City men are too patriotic and too proud to allow their club to languish, and, depend upon it, whilst old London counts a single member, that one last man will, from his own purse, find funds to keep it alive, inscribe on his colors, La Tayette Sintulula Forsan, and shout with stentorian lungs for recruits. The London Chess Club, organized on the 6th of April, 1807, Mr. Augustus Hankey being first president, and the committee numbering among its members, Sir Astley Cooper, the celebrated surgeon, Sir Isaac Leon Goldsmith, and others of almost equal eminence. The meetings took place at Tom's Coffee House in Cornhill. Such men as Surratt, Lewis, Walker, MacDonnell, Cochrane, Popert, Perigal, Staunton, Fraser, etc., have either been members of the club or frequenters of it. A good story is told of Perigal, who for a long period officiated as the honorary secretary. At the time, de Chapelet made his ridiculous challenge to play any English amateur a match at pawn in two moves. Mr. Perigal was sent out to Paris to arrange preliminaries with the gasconading Frenchman. De Chapelet soon showed how little he was in earnest, and the ambassador returned without having effected anything. On being questioned at the London as to the appearance, manner, etc., of the French champion, he said, with much gravity, Mr. de Chapelet is the greatest chess player in France. Mr. de Chapelet is the greatest whist player in France. Mr. de Chapelet is the greatest billiard player in France. Mr. de Chapelet is the greatest pumpkin grower in France. And Mr. de Chapelet is the greatest liar in France. A match by correspondence was commenced in 1824 between the London and Edinburgh chess clubs, and was won by the latter. Two games were commenced simultaneously, the moves being forwarded every night through the post office. On one occasion, the Londoners sent off three moves at once, a half-hour in advance of their usual time, and after the letter was posted, it was discovered that the last move was founded on a miscalculation, and might lose the game. Application was immediately made at the office for the letter to be returned, but such a thing was impossible without an order from the Secretary of State. The second letter was thereupon dispatched to Edinburgh, retracting the move in question, but the Caney sons of Ald Riki held them to their first showing, and the London club lost the game in consequence. Shortly afterwards, the Edinburgh club made a similar blunder, but they, somehow or other, induced their postmaster to produce the letter, and they corrected the move on the outside. 
Of course, the Londoners wouldn't stand that. In the spring of 1846, Staunton played and won his match with Harwitz at the rooms of the club, and in the summer of the same year, he there also vanquished Harwitz, in a contest of seven even, seven pawn and move, and seven pawn in two games. In the latter part of that year, and in the same locality, Harwitz and Horwitz played a match, the former scoring eight games to his opponent's seven, and, meeting again subsequently, a similar result was effected. In 1847 the club entered on a match by correspondence with the Amsterdam Cercle des Ejects, the latter having sent a challenge of fifty pounds to any Londoner club. One game lasted five years, and was won by the Englishman, and a second game was drawn. The Londoners scored the third, and this game is considered to be one of the finest and most brilliant contests by correspondence on record. The players selected by the club to represent them in this celebrated match were Misters Mongredou, Slow, Medley, and Greenaway, a glorious quartet who are now stronger than ever. The London Chess Club did not take part in the tournament of 1851, because the St. George's, under the auspices of Mr. Staunton, wished to assume a position derogatory to their claims, nor was it proper that the oldest and most influential club in the United Kingdom should play second fiddle to a much younger association. But they gave a cup of the value of one hundred guineas to be played for by the foreign amateurs then in London, and Anderson, Sizab, Sizen, Kling, and Harwitz were among the contestants. The cup was won by Herr Anderson. In 1852-53, Harwitz and Williams played a match at the London club, the first-named player winning a large majority of the games. And, finally, on Paul Morphy's being challenged last year by Herr Lowenthal, this club, ever foremost in the interests of chess, doubled the latter's stakes, and offered the combatants battleground for half the games in their saloons. Nowhere has Paul Morphy met with a heartier English welcome than from the veterans of this flourishing association. Amongst the strongest amateurs now figuring on the muster-roll of the London Chess Club are those ancients, Messrs. Slough and George Walker, and Messrs. Mongredou, Medley, Maud, Greenaway, and Bryan. May their shadow never grow less. THE Philidorian ROOMS A chess establishment has lately been opened, under the title, in Rathbone Place, Oxford Street, partaking of the peculiar character of the divan in the Strand. The admission, as in the latter, is either by subscription or by entrance fee of sixpence, which includes a cup of coffee or cigar. As the Philidorian is too youthful an undertaking to possess a history, I must confine myself to mentioning some of the principal frequenters, and, considering the size of the room and its age, the establishment may well be proud of its supporters. The well-known Austrian amateur, Herr Falkbeer, may be found there daily, with such proficients as Brian, Zytogorowski, Wormald, Kenny, Healy, and the rising star Campbell, together with many others, scarcely less known to fame. As the Philidorian is centrally situated, in the midst of a very populous and influential neighborhood, and too far from any similar place of resort, it will probably hold its own and become one of the great temples of Caïsa. End of Section 5